0: Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast with your hosts, Yasmina and Ari, who will be uncovering gems of wisdom with Jewish
1: educators from around the world.
2: If you like our episodes and you want to become a patron, you can help support more episodes just like this by going to www.patreon.com forward slash Jewish Education Experience Podcast. Our guest today is Rabbi Erez Sherman, and he is a rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, California, with his wife, Rabbi Nicole Guzik. He is an active educator and musician in both Sinai Temple Religious School and Sinai Akiba Academy. With his passion for sports, he created Sinai Temple Basketball Camp. Keen Special Needs Sports Clinic and hosts the weekly podcast Rabbi on the Sidelines where sports and faith intersect. Hello Rabbi Sherman, welcome to our podcast and thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me. It's
0: so good to connect uh, virtually these days.
1: So do you ever go by Rabbi Eras or just Rabbi Sherman?
0: so I go by the rabbi sherman and it's actually I got that from my dad who's also rabbi sherman so uh the shame on in the name of my my dad um (laughs) and my sister is rabbi marshall so we've all been like the last name people I don't I don't know why just just happened that way yeah it's so
2: interesting and then your wife is a rabbi too that's pretty cool and you also
0: yeah so she has her own last name rabbi guzik um so it's a family of rabbis both Horizontally, vertically, everywhere, uh, wow. which is so interesting, pretty neat.
2: That is pretty neat. Do you guys collaborate on things here and there too? Well, obviously, your wife, you guys work together, but do you collaborate with your sister? And
0: yeah, it's interesting. So um, now in the virtual world, we've been able to share resources in terms of the programs that I'm doing, then she does, and I see something in Cherry Hill at FL, and I get to do that over here. Um, in terms of collaboration with my dad, he also has a synagogue in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. And he, uh, it's actually really nice. You know, you always say like, in the name of my father, or in the name of my mother, you know, quoting the generations before. But it's always beautiful when I hear him also using the teachings of me or my wife or my sister. Um, so it's become a family affair. But it, when we say collaborate, it's also interesting because I always tell our bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, if they couldn't show up, for their bar and bat mitzvah and they somebody else read their divar torah wouldn't sound good because it's not from their own hearts right. um and i say the same thing you know my, my wife gives me a sermon say here just read this I said it wouldn't be good because it's not it's not from my own neshama it's not from my own you know heart and soul so mm-hmm. yes collaboration and conversation but i think the product always comes from uh inside each one of us so
1: there, there's two of you when there's a dispute who wins? <laughs>
0: Uh, Rabbi Wolpe wins because he's our, uh, <laughs> actually, it's funny that you said that because when we came on to work together, first, Rabbi Guzik, my wife, was working with Rabbi David Wolpe, and he said, I've never done this before. What if I choose one of you to give the sermon? And he said, no, we're not like that. So to be honest, we work together in a very large congregation, and we don't really see each other besides the dinner table, which is okay. wonderful because we do such such different things, um, even within the realms of education, which I know we're also going to chat about too.
1: Right. Definitely. All right. Well, let's let's kick it off. Um, can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you began your journey in education?
0: Sure. So born in Syracuse, New York, upstate New York, uh in the 80s and 90s, when the time when I grew up, if anybody's trying to figure out how old I am, um, it was a fairly large Jewish community, about 8,000 Jews. So for a city of that size, a decent large Jewish community. Um, looking back at the people who were in that community, a lot of Holocaust survivors and their children. Um, nowadays, if you look in upstate New York and the Jewish demographic, a lot of people who were my age, so now uh, mid to upper thirties, went to larger cities, if you wish, to find a more robust Jewish life sometimes. Um, but looking back then, it was an amazing place to grow up. Um, people really knew each other. And that's something that in a larger city, I feel like I don't get as much. You know, If I don't show up, then you know somebody else will show up for me. Um, and I try to teach that. Um, in our Jewish day school, the Syracuse Hebrew day school, where I went through sixth grade, that was where I got my foundations of what I do today. Orthodox rabbi taught in the day school. That's where I learned to read Rashi script for the first time, read Mishnah for the first time, but also it was at home as well. I'll give you a funny example, um, where, you know, the kids would dress up for Shabbat on Friday and my mom would never dress me up. I said, everybody else is dressing up. She said, Yes, but Shabbat begins when we light the candles, and I uh, never understood that until now. Because you know, in school you play Shabbat, but when it is Shabbat, you do Shabbat. Right. So I think that connection um, is really important for me when I teach as well. That you learn in a in, you, you learn in a classroom, but then where is your living laboratory? And for me, it was in the home and in the synagogue, and I've really taken that to heart in terms of what I do in my own role as well.
1: That's awesome. Wow. All right. Well, you mentioned Rabbi David Wool um, P. Yep. Are there any educators that you particularly admire? Yeah. So I'm going to steal one from not the Jewish realm, but
0: the musical realm, because um, I majored in music at Columbia University. And oh, every cool. single step of my rabbinic career, I'm not sure if I have followed music or music has followed me. Um, but when my internship was in Temple Shalom in Greenwich, Connecticut, when the rabbi was looking for um, somebody who was comfortable with instruments being played on Shabbat, I was, um, and it would be a bonus if they could play an instrument. And I did. Um, So I went there for my intern, my, uh, uh, just a weekend. And the rabbi's like, "Uh, you're hired. I was like, "But I didn't even apply for anything. (laughs) Um, And he gave me wonderful advice. His name is Rabbi Mitch Hurwitz. He said, I want you to think about not being a musical rabbi, but you being a rabbi who uses music within your educational realm. I thought that's really important. Hmm. It's not like, oh, that rabbi plays the piano, let's hire him to sing Havdalah. But what does music bring to the table within a religious and educational context? I ended up writing my thesis undergrad at Columbia University in the Jewish Theological Seminary on that specific topic. Wow. um, Looking at halakha, looking at music within halakha and how that determined what congregations around the country. And I looked at also Orthodox congregations because I was very influenced by uh, Congregation Ramat Ora on 110th Street on Broadway in Upper West Side, fully a cappella music. I never wanted instruments to be a replacement for uh, words that we did not know, but rather music to be an enhancement of tefillah. And the Mm -hmm. essence of that Um, the essence of that thesis was simcha shel mitzvah that how could a mitzvah be enhanced with joy Um, and I looked at different models I now ended up at Sinai Temple where the very popular and if you wish famous in Jewish music Craig Taubman and Rabbi Wolpe started Friday Night Live for young professionals Um, So cool! we use music in many different ways ironically right now I run the traditional minion at Sinai Temple um, called Family Minion where we don't use instruments because we also find it very important to have that space in our big tent as well. So right now the musical rabbi doesn't use instruments, but for instance 2 years ago we followed some of the orthodox congregations and I brought in an a cappella group on my holidays and people were like well, what was that? I said let's be open in terms of what what does it mean to be musical. Mm-hmm. So I bring that to your attention because education, two musical mentors were both my classical music teacher, Steve Heyman, Syracuse University, but also my jazz um, teacher, my first jazz teacher, Dr. Howard Potter. And he always taught me about jazz. You always end up in the same place, but you take a different route to get there. I thought that was really important. I I think it's the the Jewish way. Um, You never take the same route and halakha means the path, the way to walk. And there's lots of different ways to get where we need to
2: right definitely yeah we so would that,
0: love to uh read that thesis if you want to uh, you know it sounds really interesting does
2: sound you know when, nice. you, when you
0: want to fall asleep quickly i'm happy to send that to you so <laughs> i just want to give you one other example in the jewish realm though because i wasn't just inspired musically but at the seminary in new york um what i loved about jts was you weren't just reading the books of the scholars but you were having conversations with them mm-hmm. and i would say one of those people was dr neil gilman uh Ali bachad blessed memory uh giant in the f- Jewish philosophy world who taught me how to think about God and I know that we're going to talk about God in a moment and also somebody like Dr. Benjamin Gampel who uh, liturgy of medieval history I could never think that that would actually come to life that he was able to like bring these people to life in that classroom and realize that we were part of that long chain of tradition
2: that's really cool i'm curious what which instruments do you play
0: so piano is the only instrument that I know how to play. Okay. Ironically, my children are uh, taking cello and violin downstairs at the moment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, they also take piano, but theory is my thing. And just in the last year or so, I've gotten into composition, um, specifically Jewish composition, because I want to hear some new sounds coming from our ancient uh, ancient liturgy.
1: Wow. Yeah, we'd love to. Maybe maybe we'll uh, get to have you back for another one where we, where we talk about that. I we'll love it. All right. Well, so, so how, do you, how do you talk about um, God um, and how might that differ with uh, the various age groups that you teach? Yeah.
0: So I'll go back to Dr. Gilman for that. Um, he asked us in my sophomore year in college, I was in his class sitting just miles away from ground zero in New York. And he said to us, where was God on 9-11? And I was just days after 9-11. And how does a 19-year-old kid from upstate New York answer that? Um, and then he asked us another question: Where is God on the pediatric cancer ward? Mm-hmm. And these were answers that nobody has. But the end of the semester, the final assignment was hand in your metaphor for God. Mm-hmm. So on one end, the artist drew a you know the artist in the class drew a picture. Um, on another end, musicians wrote songs. And me being a sports person, I had this interesting metaphor of God as a coach. And when you think about the sports world, the first person that does not get the credit when things go right is the coach. It's always the players. They're on the field. They're on the court. They're hitting the ball over the fence. They're putting the ball in the hoop. But when things don't go wrong, the players don't usually get fired. They might go to another team, but the coach is out in a second. That's right? They, the coach is on the hot seat, they say. and when you look at God in that way, I think it was a very interesting metaphor. And so when it's different, when you look at different um, age groups, that metaphor, I believe fits everybody because lots of people play sports, whether it's a six-year-old in t-ball or it's an elderly person watching the NBA finals or World Series or or whatever it is. But the question that often comes up for God, and I just had a bar mitzvah student a couple of weeks ago, He had his bar mitzvah, but for about a year, he didn't want to because he didn't believe in God. So the question I, and I don't remember where I heard this the first time, but the question I always ask people is, tell me about the God that you do not believe in. And -hmm. they look at you strangely and they say, and I respond, that is also the God that I do not believe in. Wow. That doesn't mean that there are many gods, right? Adonai, we have one God, but there are many different characteristics of God that I don't believe are present, or I believe that, you know, I find God in, for instance, the Rabbi Harold Kushner's philosophy and the goodness of the world, and not in the plane striking the towers of 9-11, the goodness in the first responders. I mean, look at this past year with COVID, right? In our own congregation made a beautiful video of all the first responders. Yeah, that's God's goodness. God's goodness is not in the virus that has taken over a half a million people in this country, but God's goodness is in the scientists. Um, So that idea of where goodness is in God, I think is a question that people have of all ages. Um, And I think it's bringing that question, not that answer, but bringing that question to where people are. So if it's a religious school classroom or zoom room, it's asking them how their week was and finding moments where they felt God um, in the, Adult population, it's a little deeper in terms of you know looking at different texts of the thirteen attributes of God, or like how can God be an Adonai Yishnel Chama, a person of war, but also at the end say oh, say Shalom Rama, God who brings peace into heavens. How can you be both? And I think there, I always give the analogy of a human being. Um, I'm a brother. I'm a father. I'm a rabbi. I'm a teacher. I'm a son. And even though I'm the same person wearing the same clothes, I'm a different characteristic in each of those situations. And I think if we can look at God in in that way, like when I look at the, and it's really hard on Zoom right now or on YouTube, like our Shabbat services are on YouTube and all you see is a number, 235 viewers. But when you're in the Beit Knesset and I can see, I realize the person to my left is in mourning at Shiva. The person on my right is having an Ufra for an upcoming wedding. The person in the back is having a site. And they're all there for different reasons, but in the same room. That tells me a moment where God brings people together for all different things.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's powerful.
1: Sorry. How are you guys doing with uh, COVID in your uh, community? Yeah, so um, this past week was part of Vayakhel.
0: There's a reason why Moshe says Vayakhel, to gather, because we like to do that as Jews. And I don't think we just like to. I think we need to. We need to, yeah. Um, When when this all started a year ago, you know, we canceled B'nai Mitzvah for three weeks. And then we realized we're very blessed with over 100 B'nai Mitzvah a year. That if we cancel them for a year, we're going to have 200 B'nai Mitzvah and that's just not possible. So we brought them back in all different ways and forms. And thankfully now we have archival footage on video. And there's a beautiful story of a, bar mitzvah that was right after Sukkot and the mother emailed me and said can I get the dimensions of the shulchan of the table in the chapel so why do you want that and she said because I want to build my own for my child and then I want this table to go from house to house each week for the b'nai mitzvah and they're going to sign their name and when this is all over all the people who shared that shulchan in their own homes are going to come together for a party wow I really like that idea yeah, it, it's been amazing. So first we started delivering Torah. We're like a Uber. It's like Postmates Torah every Thursday. Sure. We take the different the Torahs to the different homes. Um, but now we don't just take Torahs. <laughs> we then started giving the tables out. And then we started giving portable Aron Kodesh's out. And hmm. now their home literally became a Mikdash Ma'at. Nice. So it's been a way to connect in ways that we never thought. And I think the question now is, which traditions did we start Mm. That should not go
1: away when we come back. Yep. That, right. Totally. Yeah, that sounds. That's like a genius. I think, like pedagogical uh, technique there. Definitely. Um, so, so speaking about education, chinuch, um can be an amorphous term. How do you define education?
0: So I'm going to go to Hanukkah for this answer because the word chinuch is found in Hanukkah, and Hanukkah is rededication, and I think education is rededication to knowledge Um, when I I have the opportunity to teach fourth and fifth grade trope in our day school Sinai Kiva Academy, which is attached to our synagogue of Sinai temple. And we do, it's called cheronomy, which are the hand motions to the tropes. And I look at the fourth graders and they have never seen trope before. And uh, I, it's a, like a strange experience for them. But when I come back in fifth grade, they, they know this stuff like it's second nature and First, they're like, oh, I just have to memorize this stuff. I say, no, no memorization, only education. If we're just memorizing, like, you know, the old school way we used to prepare for our B'nai Mitzvah, here's a tape, learn it. But you weren't learning it. You were just memorizing it yes. in one and not the other.
2: For sure.
0: Education is something that you rededicate yourself to every day. Um, and I think, like, like I said earlier, it's also um, making it relevant. And I don't mean relevant in a dumbed down, simple way, right? Something can be relevant and also deep at the same moment. I think that's what we've really found over this pandemic. What topics are we choosing to speak about? Um, How do we use technology and other tools that have never been used before? Um, We've had scholars that we've never been able to have because of time zone differences that based on the click of a button, we've been able to rededicate ourselves to knowledge. And with that, I take the phrase from before the Shema, a little For me, education is not only teaching facts and materials, but it's also learning more from I don't want to say the audience, but learning as much from our class as we are from the teacher as well. Yeah,
2: that's really important that you know we really can learn from from everyone. Um, can you say the name of the what it's called with the hand motions again for trope?
1: <laughs> yeah, chironomy. chironomy. It's a yeah, musical so term. Cool. That so
2: sounds awesome. Where does where
0: does one learn that? Um, so I learned mine from Cantor Ariane Brown. I'll give her a shout out. She Used to be at Sinai Temple. Now she's at Israel in uh, Washington D.C. Wow. You can, in fact, she has YouTube videos of that as well. Um, but it's like you know, like like the Gabbai on Shabbat, and I uh, they'll often do that as well. But it's it's fun okay. for the kids. Um, we do like Tironomy charades and learning trope,
1: that is and
0: so it, cool it's neat because you know, this is fourth grade and they're getting through three years later. And I love when I stand next to them. Now that I've been doing this long enough in this same location, I say like, do you remember when? And they're like, Oh yeah, I totally get it now. And when those light bulbs go off, that's when I, that's when I realized that it, education's working.
2: It's true. And it, it establishes, it creates that little seed. You plant that seed that they're in fourth grade and then, they might not remember it right away, but then when they're bar, when they're at that age, bar, bar mitzvah age, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you know, it's uh, that's just really cool." A way to hold on to it.
0: Yeah, and we've been so for before we started doing trope in the school, right? It was just the classroom. Now that class is attached to an experience, so that class comes for Shabbat. They teach their parents chironomy, They read a pasuk of Torah. Um, so it's a living laboratory that I call it.
1: Right. Yeah. I feel like it's a great, great um combination. Um, you know, for someone who let's say they're having a bar about mitzvah and they have what do you call them, a tironomer? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. You know, and you get the tironomer there and there, it's like just a whole different experience. So exactly. Wow.
2: I'm also curious how how did you come up with or how did you tie together the Judaism with the sports stuff? Cause I Yes. Your podcast that you have. How did you do that? How did you start that? Very curious. Yeah,
0: so I'm absolutely passionate about sports. Um, I'll watch any sporting event, whether it's table tennis, uh, skee ball, or uh, the Final Four, or whatever it is. I, I find value in sports, whether it's the competition, the teamwork, the camaraderie, all the, all those values that you find in sports. When I got to Sinai Temple, like I said, we're blessed with a beautiful building. Um, not so much outdoor space, but we have three gyms. And when I got to Sinai, there was empty gyms during the summer, but I knew all these kids were playing basketball in like uh, recreational leagues. Uh-huh. So I said, "Okay, if I can bring them here with the same level or even better level of sports, and then attach those Jewish values to that, I think I can do something." So. I found the coach that I knew I could believe in. His name is Coach Jay Jelani Bendel, was not Jewish, and he's been amazing, and he loves Shabbat dinners now. It's just awesome. And then I I grew up in basketball camps. I grew up going to camps like Christian Brothers Academy, Bishop Grimes, right? The rabbi's son was going all to these Christian camps. It was strictly basketball, but they happened to be in Christian schools, uh-huh. and I did it the other way around. And what I got was an amazing product. Um, I Every day has a speaker. And these people from the NBA, people from the sports world, people who had inspirational messages. Um, and then they, I got great competition. And instead of an award ceremony, there's a Shabbat dinner at my house in the driveway. In um, cool. every single day, there's a social action component. So whether it's a homeless drive or Keen, as you mentioned before, and that's kids enjoying exercise now. I'm a local board member of Keen. It's a national organization. And... These are mostly low-income kids coming from downtown LA, simply looking to play some sports. Their parents get an hour of respite time. Now we provide resources for them. So a healthy lunch, um, um, translated into Spanish resources about education in the public schools. And it's, I call it beyond basketball. It's gone much beyond the actual game. And now kids are doing B'nai Mitzvah. I don't call them project, but Mitzvah Experiences with keen. So, uh, keen wasn't happening at Sinai at the shul during COVID, but those kids still needed to eat. So uh, one kid provided for instance, Christmas meals for all these families. Um, so it started with the ball. It's now gone well beyond the ball. And the podcast came out of the relationships that I've been very fortunate to form with, uh, people who have made really significant differences in sports. And I asked them the same question every week. I say, do faith and sports intersect? And these are broadcasters on ESPN and CBS and players and coaches. And every single one of them said yes in some very unique, different form. And I think it's fascinating because what I'm able to do is bring out the stories behind the athletes, which they wouldn't really share on the court, but it's within them.
2: That really is fascinating.
1: Yeah, yeah. First thing that comes to mind with me uh, with sports is um, just like the, the battle. You know, like life is a battle. Um, there's so many, um, so challenging. What's the biggest challenge that you face as an educator?
0: Yeah, um, I think entry level. Um, and actually, two words that I use because part of my hat as a rabbi at Sinai Temple is membership transactional versus relational, right? People show up at a school, at a synagogue. How much does it cost for a bar mitzvah? How much does it cost for a wedding? How much does it cost for a funeral? Mm-hmm. And we need to change that model to relational. It's not how, you know, and, and a lot of other Jewish organizations, I'm very involved with APAC, right? Um, the US Israel relationship. And I don't think most people go to APAC and say, how much does the US Israel relationship cost? Mm-hmm. And if the US Israel relationship is down this year, then I'm not going to be a member. That's not the way it works. Or the ADL, right? Anti Defamation League, fighting anti Semitism. If the numbers of anti Semitism are up this year, then I'm not going to join. No, you, you join because the cause, the communal that you believe in. So that's been um, the biggest challenge. I think we've seen somebody once another rabbi told me over this COVID time period, disruption is a time for disruption. I think that's true for the case of education as well. Um, We're just coming back in person over the last two weeks and family are saying for the same families who said, I didn't want to do Zoom religious school. Now they're like, I love this. I don't have to fight the traffic. I can make my own coffee in the morning. So that balance, but disruption is a time for disruption. I think we're at that moment in a very exciting way. Um, so yes, which content has to be delivered in terms of facts? Olive is aleph, bet is bet. But I was just talking to a different educator and they say, you know what? We need more retreats because retreats build relationships and relationships build community. The facts, yeah, maybe we can learn Hebrew online, but we come together to do the communal piece. Um, so I think the relational piece is the challenge, but also the blessing that we're, I think, going to, I feel like it's going to burst soon in a really beautiful way.
1: Right. So so do you think like the the dues model, I guess that's what I think, of the, the dues <laughs> model of, of uh, synagogues, is that, should that be changed? Is there a better way to do that? So I don't want to go on the record here. Um <laughs> Is there a better way? Don't worry, we'll, we'll edit it out later.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. I think uh, we'll, we'll go Torah on this one. Call Nadiv Libo, right? Give according to your heart's desire. When do you give according to your heart's desire? When you have a sacred relationship. But it's a chicken and the egg question. How does this? How do you begin the sacred relationship? Um, so we're blessed that we have a very full preschool. We have an amazing parenting center That parents, like they they can't get in the door fast enough. That's amazing. Um, We, yeah, so does the model have to change? Probably yes, but it's a relational model that I think can, it it can change. So we we need both. We need, we need all. We need all to be involved in this, uh, which Rabbi Wolpe often says, the experiment
1: of Judaism. Right. Okay. You didn't say anything confidential there, right? (laughs) <laughs> nope, all good. <laughs> that's a great answer.
2: So how do you uh, stay motivated with the challenges that you face, the challenges you continue to face and being a rabbi, you know, one of the rabbis at the, the synagogue, the shul and everything. How, how do you stay motivated to continue?
0: Yeah, no, I think it starts with foundations and then it might look different every year. I also want to bring up one really important point with education, that's special needs education. Um, my wife created Beit Bracha, House of Blessing, um, which is our special needs education. Um, her parents were special needs educators in the public school system in Laguna Hills. And on my side, um, I had a brother, Ayal of Blessed Memory, um, who was a quadriplegic for 32 of his 36 years. Wow. Um, even in my dad's own synagogue, he didn't go to religious school because it—you know—we didn't have the resources to understand how to have those resources. Um, so that's why it goes back to my first answer. Uh, earlier in this podcast, which is the home is where it's taught because mm-hmm. that's where it's taught. Um, so I, I like to say I look at the world in curb cuts, meaning I see places where things are not accessible and I try to make a curb cut for them to be accessible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And through our Beit Bracha program, these stories, families who were said, there's no way like Jewish education, like you can't even read English um, left to right, how are they going to read Hebrew right to left. And we find those moments for them. And what's some of the most meaningful B'nai Mitzvah are those Beit bracha families. It's not in a separate service. It's in the main service. Nobody's uh, segregated. Rather, they're integrated. It's an amazing, amazing program that uh, we at Sinai Temple, I'm proud of and proud of the program that my wife has created. It's become a very special thing in the Los Angeles community.
2: Yeah, that's really cool. Is it something that other synagogues in the area have also incorporated?
0: Um, Yes, there's lots of different um, ones. Some of those students also go to Camp in the Amit Sim program, which is the special needs program. And this is a really neat thing that happened the last few years. There's the Ezra program, which is vocational learning at Camp Ramon in Ojai, California. And they started a thing called Ezra Ba'ir, which is those kids during the year paired up with Jewish organizations. So I have one young man, um, Zach, who, Zachary Cohen. Shout out to Zach, (laughs) who uh, works with us three days a week and in the office. And I remember him coming in the first day with his like shoulder slouched. He didn't know what to do. And then he came to like a suit coat party at our backyard. I think like before COVID and his dad came too, and his dad was like, does he know these people? I was like, we all know Zach. And it was an amazing moment how the community has embraced not just Zach, but how that by year has also embraced us. So it goes back to your question, the motivation. Um, it's not just like doing something new and putting something to the side. It's really um, looking at the community and what the needs are, needs change, obviously, but sticking to your mission. And I think that mission is education and not just the facts, but education in terms of who we are as a, as a community and as a people.
2: Right. How do you think we could do a better job at including people with special needs?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say, but sellam Elohim, an image of God, but it's much harder to do. Um, So it's finding, finding, you know, some people say also like, oh, there's no people like this in my community. Well, that's often the case, not because there are no people like this or that, but because they don't feel welcome in this or that community. So it's like, oh, we don't have that problem. They're not here. No, think about it the other way. Why aren't those people walking in the door? Because they don't feel welcome. So, um, that I think is a start. Look, um, there's lots of different challenges to address, um, but it, it, I keep going back to relationships. Um, you know, when you have a relationship with the person, with the family, with the clergy member, with the teacher, it starts there and those people become a model. So, and I think it's really important, like a kid like Zach Cohen, right? When he comes in with me to the preschool, the preschool kids now know that that's somebody with special needs. If a two-year-old doesn't grow up, doesn't have a special needs member in their family or their you know uh, social circle, how how are they gonna know any differently? Yeah. So I think it's the exposure and not the exposure of like, oh, put this person on stage, but real exposure of who this person is and who we are, um, that's I think how we do a better job.
1: Right. Yeah, and and Thank God there's, you know, people like you out there. I mean, you seem pretty motivated yourself. Um, and I think it ties in also with your definition of education. You know, the constant, mm-hmm. rededication, renewal, all that. So, um, you know, thanks to, to you and people like you who are doing that. Well, it's a, it's a passion. Oh, it's, thank uh, you. So what, what advice would you give to new educators uh, who are just beginning their journeys in the field? Yeah, I think back to rabbinical school. Not now, uh, 12 years ago, right? Like, what would they have
0: taught me? Um, and I mean, the technology go for it, absolutely go for it and learn it. Um, you know, we all learned zoom in two seconds, but I was afraid to do a breakout room till two weeks ago. Um, so that scared me, but my nine-year-old daughter helps me and sets it up. So like,
2: well, be open. That amazing?
0: it's more than amazing. She made these iPhone move. I'm like, how did you make that? She's like, I just do it. So be open to the new. While not giving up on the values that you want to teach, and even though new is different and definitely scary, um, and there obviously will be pushback, new can also be exciting, <laughs> right? You always want to make the new idea somebody else's idea, and then have somebody else say, "Oh, we should do this," and say, ah, "I told you so," right? <laughs> um, so yeah, you know the words of Breshit Barai Elohim; those will never change, but the way we teach them. It should change in a beautiful way. I think we really saw that over this past year. So my advice would be, be open to innovation, um, but keep the foundation. So innovation, new innovation, same foundation. How's that? I like it.
2: I like it. (laughs) Um, How do you think we can help build a proper Torah foundation to make sure that we continue Having Jews and having kids continue
1: to want to be Jewish. I almost feel like we need to rephrase this one because it's like you know the fam- in some sense the foundation's already built when the child's much younger, right? Like, uh-huh. like all for all of us. Um, but maybe there's if you're you know innovating on top of the foundation, maybe the foundation does it ever need um, work?
0: Yeah, uh, tomorrow I'm starting my second year of teaching the introduction to Judaism class for the American Jewish University. Um, if you ever step into those classes, wow, those people, they're adults, right? Who don't know so much about Judaism. They're either rediscovering what they didn't have as a child. They're becoming Jews by choice. And when you see the drive for education from these people, it's unbelievable. Um, so it reminds me of Rabbi Akiva, who, of course, started learning at age 40 and became one of the greatest sages of our, of our not of our time, but of our uh, of our history. Right. Um, it can start at any year. And you never know when the spark is going to happen. So it can happen. You know, you walk into a kindergarten classroom. Like I already have three kindergartners who I would love to peg for rabbinical school. Right? You want to already get them going. But I also want every one of those people to be a valued member in the community, in the congregation, and have that proper Torah foundation. So I think it's uh, building the proper foundation is. uh, Let's go back to Hanukkah. Is Lighting the first candle so that more can burn the next night.
1: Right. I really it's just actually a really interesting analogy, I think, because would you say that Rabbi Akiva built upon the same foundation, or did he knock down what was there and build something new? Yeah. You uh, know, it's the same thing with the with the temple, right? Like we were right. down to it, to its foundation, I
0: think. Exactly. I mean, Yavna and bring up like it would have been all over, but there was a group of people that said, It's not over. Let's continue to do this. And let's go back one year ago, right? It could have been over. What was the doomsday scenario? And yes, granted, some synagogues closed and merged and things like that. But there was a lot of people out there that said, we can do this. We can do this. I've seen it with weddings. I've seen it with funerals. I've seen it with a Mitzvah. I've seen it with all life cycle events. we all seen it this year that we can do this. And now, like you just said, I think it's both what you said, right? It's taking the foundation that we had and then building it. You know, my grandfather, who passed away over 10 years ago, would not know this Judaism that we saw just 12 years later. And I pray that my grandchildren will, this goes to the Rebbe Akiva Moshe story, right? When Moses is sitting in the back of the classroom. was like, what's this guy teaching? Until he says, I learned this from Moses at Sinai, did he realize, ah, the foundation was there, but the innovation is what I'm
1: seeing. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. these are great Rich. answers. Giving us a lot to think about. We we may need to rephrase that question going forward because that's a new perspective here. <laughs> yeah.
2: What does successful Jewish education look like? Do you think?
1: Yeah, I feel in like the Yeah, I mean, this is. Uh, I can only imagine what what you're envisioning. Yeah, uh, I guess I can't actually.
0: So I think it's in the classroom. It's on the court it's in the home it's at the beach it's in the forest it's on the bus it's everywhere it's an all encompassing aspect um we're blessed and blessed to be 3 miles from santa monica so we can do a shabbat mm-hmm. at the beach and we can do a you know shabbat on the roof in january and have it be 80 degrees oh my um gosh, so, you're
1: jealous. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but it rained today
0: it's crazy oh my gosh <laughs> um but I think that all all encompassing, yeah, I like to say this, that you don't check, it's a Judaism where you don't check your kippah at the door, you know, and like Mm -hmm. shul where there's the kippah bin, which, you know what, this might be a good analogy post-COVID, right? Everybody, or we at least, have gotten rid of the kippah bin. It's now bring your own, right? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I think that's a good analogy for Judaism too, because what happens, you put your kippah in the bin, you leave, and outside on the street, you're just whoever you are, American, whatever. When you come in, all of a sudden you're Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. I think Jewish education, Jewish community going forward is all encompassing. When you're on the street, do you think like a Jew, right? Not in a good way or a bad way, but do you have that sense of Judaism when you're walking down the street? Or do you, you know, do the good values when you're in the sanctuary, but you, I'll give you one last example. A couple, uh, many years ago, Somebody told me that their friend wraps the fill-in every morning. I said, that's very, very good. I said, do you know why he wraps the fill-in? Said, probably because it's the right thing to do. It's a mitzvah. No, no, no. He wraps the fill-in to protect him against the bad business deals that he'll do all day long. Wow.
2: Uh, wow.
0: So that was not the right model. Right. The right model is wrap the fill-in. I call it, when somebody takes off the fill-in, I call it the God hug. When, you know, the print, the, the, the things that you see on your arms. Take that God hug with you. So when you look down at your arm, you you make the right choices and not the wrong ones. For sure. So, yes, all encompassing Judaism is for me the education of the future that's experiential, but deep.
1: Interesting. Yeah,
2: it is interesting. Yeah, let's let's see how things go. I can only imagine how much things are going to change in the next bit.
0: Yes, hopefully for the good. I hope so, too,
2: for sure. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, yeah, Rabbi Sherman, you've given us a lot to think about. We hope uh, our thank listeners you. are really going to like this too. And uh, and if they have any questions, they can you know track you down. And uh, yeah, please.
0: I'm on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Clubhouse. If you're not on Clubhouse, definitely join. We're going to get a presence there. When we talk about Jewish education, I honestly think that's the next social media that's going to be really important.
1: That would be yeah, wow. That's really cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we're definitely going to have to check back in with you. Um, and thank
2: you for. Uh, joining us and for giving us your wisdom, your tips, and um, taking the time to uh, talk with us tonight. I know you have kids and busy, (laughs) so we really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. We're going to have to get you back for that composition podcast. Yes, I'm yours. (laughs) That would be really cool.